0: Welcome to Fly in the Wall. My name's Justin. And I'm Alec. And we are back uh, with a really fantastic episode this week. We have former Attorney General Eric Holder on the pod. We are, like, really excited about this. Could not be more excited. We had a great conversation with him uh, about the work he did um, as Attorney General before that, uh, and then sort of a bit about what he's doing today with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee as well. Uh, Before we jump into that interview, though, as always, follow us on social media, at Fly on the Wall pod on Twitter instagram find us on facebook as well choose an email at flying the wall podcast at gmail.com with any kind of feedback guests you like to see on um, or anything like that we always love to hear from you all
1: we will be getting to the interview with eric holder in a minute which is great and we're really excited for one of the highest profile guests we've had so far but first a couple orders of business namely the segment wheel our segment wheel let's give that segment wheel a spin alec What do we got up first? And the first segment is, who said that? So the quote is, and I'll say the quote, Justin, you can guess. Sounds good. Um, Mostly because I found the quote and therefore know the answer. <laughs> uh, if you want to call me an activist attorney general, I'll proudly accept that label. So hint, it's by your former attorney general.
0: Mm, wow, that's a really coincidental quote we found for this week's episode. Yeah.
1: I am going to go out on a limb here and guess that that was former attorney general Eric Holder. So it almost seems too easy. But that's right. Nice. It is Eric Holder in response to well, accusations. What was this reference to? So this was in reference to um, accusations that his civil rights division oh uh, was God. being too activist, And uh, he this was around the time of uh, various police brutality incidents. Oh. And he wanted to uh, defend his civil rights division and said that he would accept the label of activist if that's what it meant to be well, there activist. You go. Um, so let's uh, spin the wheel again. And our next segment is over or under. So I'm going to ask Justin a question, uh, that involves a number. And he asks, he has to guess if the right answer is over or under this number. So, uh, Governor John Hickenlooper of Colorado, my home state, joined Geopolitics for a conversation on the possibility of politics. Um, and one thing they talked about was negative advertising. So Justin, over or under, has Governor Hickenlooper in his two campaigns for governor spent over or under more, uh, one million dollars on negative ads? Wow, a million dollars on two campaigns. Now, keep in mind, it's Colorado. It's a swing state. That's true. So you got you to gotta spend on TV. That's a lot of money. You know what? I will go over.
0: Only because I took a class last semester where we talked a lot about the money spent on advertising, and it's just an
1: insane amount of money. So my answer is over. So the answer is under. Governor Hickenlooper has never in any campaign run a negative ad. That was a trick one. And he says he never will. So Interesting. I respect that. Although... Yeah. I mean, they're effective, or they can be effective, I guess. Yeah.
0: But good for him for taking the high road.
1: So um, with that, uh, business taken care of, let's move into our interview with former Attorney General, Eric Holder.
0: Eric Holder, thank you so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. We are Thanks so excited uh, to talk to you a little bit um, about your... distinguished career and we're going to jump right in um, to one of your biggest moments as Attorney General which of course was um, the Shelby County case. Um, So we want to know, kind of take us through the early steps of what eventually led to that groundbreaking Supreme Court decision, um, what evidence was there that Shelby County was in violation of Section 5, um, and sort of talk about the decision to eventually prosecute that.
2: Well, the Shelby County case is—it's it, that's actually interesting. It's, it's the thing? I'm glad you call it the Shelby County case as opposed to the Shelby County v. Holder case. It, mm-hmm. it, it really bothers me that my name is connected <laughs> to uh, to that decision that sure. essentially gutted, you know, the the, the Voting Rights Act. Um, and I, I think that you know time will has has shown um, that Justice Gin, Ginsburg's dissent in uh, the uh, in the Shelby County case is actually consistent with what um, we could have expected to happen. Take those restraints off, and the states have really just gone to town with all kinds of unnecessary um, voter restricting um, um, uh, regulations. And uh, so that's uh, that's one that was, you know, I kept thinking that the court, given the congressional record, and given the history of how the VRA had been um, reauthorized uh, and signed by Republican presidents, I didn't think the court actually would go that far. Um, the Solicitor General, Don Varelli, kept telling me, uh, they're going to do it. And I kept saying, no, Don, they're not going to do it. And I was saddened uh, to see that, in fact, uh, you know, that they did.
1: Yeah. Now, you know, before the Supreme Court uh, overturned Section 5, the Federal District Court had actually upheld the constitutionality, uh, Section 5. So take us a little bit inside the room of the Victory Party uh, and your reaction when you got that decision.
2: Well, you know, I, I think I'm not sure it was Victory Party as much as, you know, just kind of what I thought was consistent with the way in which courts are supposed to interpret the law. I mean, Congress had done an extensive um, examination uh, of the record, had put on the record, you know, I don't know how many witnesses, thousands of pages of of testimony. Um, There was a a factual and legal predicate for um, what the district court did and what the Supreme Court did, I think, was inconsistent uh, with what the court always says it supposed to do, which is to defer to the legislature when the legislature makes specific, um, well-supported findings. And I thought Congress had, uh, had done that.
1: Great. And did you know that it was going to go to the Supreme Court next, or did you think you had sealed the deal? That. Did you think after the federal district court ruled in favor of Section 5, that it was going to go to the Supreme Court?
2: No, I, it was clear, I, I assumed it was going to the Supreme Court you know, the whole time, which is another reason why there was not a victory party after the district court, right. because that was clearly only going to be round one
0: and talk to us a bit about those next steps. So you did obviously anticipate the Supreme Court move. So how did you mobilize not only um, forces in the administration, but really working on all levels to get uh, your, your message out on why this was so important to uphold?
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly we were fighting on you know on the strictly legal, uh, sure. led by the Solicitor General. But we're also interacting with um, other um, legal groups, civil rights groups, um, to make sure that they were filing um, appropriate things, coordinating amicus briefs, um, uh, other other kinds of, of briefs, but then also um, making sure that there was a, a communications strategy as well to talk about what was at risk, um, what the court um, was potentially going to be doing. It was a combination of all of those things, a coordinated effort um, that ultimately was not uh, unfortunately successful. And so what was your reaction?
1: I mean, you got the SCOTUS decision 5-4 uh, against Section 5. What was your first few thoughts and
2: who did you talk to? I mean, I was disappointed. Um, Don Brilli, uh, I think, is the one who called me, um, the Solicitor General called me to tell me. Uh, I was disappointed um, and really disheartened too because I I don't think that, um, you know, as I I think back to Supreme Court decisions that, you know, I disagreed with, I could see there are certain ones I could look and say, well, you know, I I get it. I see, you know, a different opinion. They viewed the law in a different way than I did. Um, This one, it seemed to me, just flew in the face of um, factual findings by, Congress um, flew in the face of, um, you know, stare decisis, the notion of, you know, respecting precedent, Mm -hmm. Um, it was, uh, it it seemed to me, you know, liberals, progressives, are often uh, accused of being activists when it comes to um, uh, decision-making, judicial decision-making. Well, this, it seemed to me, was, you know, activism on steroids, um, Mm -hmm. because the court basically had to say that um, we're gonna ignore all that Congress um, has found, and that we, five of us, um, are going to um, ignore something, uh, a statute that had been passed overwhelmingly by the House of Representatives, overwhelmingly by the Senate, and signed by you know a, um, a Republican president. Uh, and We five are gonna just say no. You all, all of you got it wrong. We got it right.
1: You're listening to Fly on the Wall. We'll be right back. This week's political fun fact is brought to you by your English teacher. <laughs> uh, it turns out that the plural of attorney general, just to stick with the theme today, the plural of attorney general is actually attorneys general, not attorney generals, uh, because attorney is the noun in there, and you can't make an adjective plural, at least in English. So um, it, it left me wondering, after I like thought of this political fun fact to do today, why it's not general attorney. Like why is it Attorney General? Like I can think of no other instance where the adjective comes after the noun. That is mind boggling. Yeah. One
0: additional political fun fact, Alec?
1: Yeah. The plural
0: secretary general is secretaries general
1: as well. And how do you know that, Justin? Uh I don't know. I'm just really smart, I guess.
0: (laughs) So then, um, obviously That's not the end of the story, though, because there are, um, as you said, you anticipated lots of other sort of local actions that were going to come out um, and take advantage of this ruling. So how did you as the administration kind of reach across not only political aisles, but also down to local levels of politics um, and and non-political organizations to start doing the work um, that would, you know, kind of prevent those sorts of of rollbacks of, of, of voting rights?
2: Yeah, that's actually an interesting question. I mean, one of the things that we did, I think it was either the day of or the day after the decision. We held a meeting in the attorney general's conference room um, on the fifth floor and I had come to that meeting all of the uh, various civil rights groups to tell them that um, although the Voting Rights Act had been seriously um, hurt, there were still parts of the act that um, were alive, section two, and that we would focus our efforts on using the remaining parts of the act, but also asking them to make sure that they focused their attention in places where um, state legislatures now unbound. We're going to be doing um, you know, a variety of, you know, nefarious right. things, and to use their, um, their legal skills, their legal capacity to um, to get into court and to make sure that they were fighting against uh, those those legislatures, and to make sure that we were coordinating so that we were being efficient in um, you know being a, a challenge to these uh, these inappropriate um, steps. Sure. Sure.
1: Why don't we want to move into a little bit more of the work that you're doing now with the National Democratic Redistricting Committee. Um, how did you come to the decision that this is what you wanted to do after your life in the Obama administration? Who did you talk to? What conversations did you have?
2: Well, I, I guess the chief con- conversation I had was with the president, President Obama, as we were both trying to decide what is it that we wanted to do in our post-government lives. And uh, we had looked at, um, we looked at a variety of things, but we saw you know, how the impact of, um, of gerrymandering and uh, the way it had led to a dysfunctional um, Congress that he had to deal with during his time as president, um, to the polarization that you see in the states, um, and just the way in which it has had a negative impact on our democracy, and we both decided that this would be a good place for us to, uh, to work in our post-government lives. And for me, it was just kind of a continuation of the work that I did as, a, as Attorney General focusing on, um, on, on voting rights. This is in some ways a fundamental voting rights issue. Um, just to make sure that um, a person's vote is, um, is reflected in the legislature um, or the Congress that um, actually is, uh, is put in place.
0: Um, so, in the run up to the 2010 elections, uh, which determined obviously who would draw the next round of congressional maps, Republicans did something sort of similar to the NDRC with Red Map. Mm-hmm. So, how much of your work now with NDRC is uh, sort of inspired as a response to that Red Map effort?
2: I'm not sure I'd say it was um, uh, inspired as a response <laughs> as much as it is an assessment of uh, the reality sure. of what Red Map led to, a decade of, um, you know, of gerrymandered seats, um, a, a, a decade, uh, almost a decade of uh, almost, I think, unprincipled opposition to President um, Obama that could not be reversed because of these gerrymandered safe seats, and a determination on, on our part not to let 2011 happen again in, in, in 2021 and that's why this effort was uh, was formed and the concern that frankly I have that if we are unsuccessful in 2021 and if we have two decades of gerrymandering i'm not at all certain that if you get to 2031 you will have a, a, the capacity as a nation to reverse something that would then become so entrenched two decades of this would be something that I think would be um, I think, really kind of scary for our our democracy.
0: Yeah, absolutely a fight that's very important, not just for Democrats, but for really, you know, anyone of any political leaning who understands how important this issue really is to fair representation. And that's
2: what, you know, I've I've tried to say that this is not, um, we're not here to gerrymander on behalf of Democrats. Um, This is really an attempt to um, just make this a fair um, redistricting process and to make our political process more competitive, which I think will make it better, um, you know, make it a better one. No,
1: we've just got a couple of minutes, but we want to do one of our kind of fun segments uh, with you before we go. It's called the lightning round. Uh-oh. Quick question. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, okay. First, as the maps currently stand, which is the most egregiously gerrymandered state?
2: Wisconsin comes to mind, um, but I'm, I'm really hard pressed to say because, uh, you know, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, North Carolina. i So there's lots of them. I'd, yeah. <laughs> uh, but if I had to pick, I'd say Wisconsin, North Carolina.
0: Great. And then our next lightning round, which uh, say, or which way, excuse me, will SCOTUS rule on partisan gerrymandering in your
2: fingers crossed they're going to rule for the plaintiffs. There you go.
1: Great. And then last thing before you go, you mentioned to us uh, before the recording that you're working on a book uh, and just wanted to give you a chance to talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. it's uh, The working title of it is called Pursuing Justice, and it's uh, both a memoir and um, an examination of the things that I've done through the course of my uh, my career, focusing on my, my the public side, my public, uh, uh, public service side of, of my career. So it's a uh, it's a book that I was supposed to turn in a manuscript last August. Uh, we kind of we kind of blew through that, and so now my hope is that we'll have something to the publishers by May or June, and I think probably um, something that'll get published mm, early 2019. Fantastic. Well, we wish you the
0: best of luck on that, and we look forward to go reading out and that. buy the book. Absolutely, the book. absolutely. We, absolutely. we encourage our listeners to do that as well. <laughs> All right, Eric Holder. Thank you so much for joining us here in Fly <laughs> on the Wall. Sure. Thanks for having me. It was Great to talk have to, have to you. you. All right. Take care. Thank you. you're listening to fly on the wall we'll be right back this week's politicos as people comes to you from connie schultz on twitter uh connie schultz is the wife of senator Sherrod brown and her tweet is senator brown at uh the cleveland indians game uh with his indian sweatshirt on and uh her caption's really funny she goes and he's nine again (laughs) hashtag go try. And there you go. There's our interview with former, former Attorney General Eric Holder. Um, one of the things I really appreciated most was, um, besides the fact that he gave us the time, really it seemed to enjoy our conversation as well, um, was just how kind of into his work he seemed like he was. You mm-hmm. know, when he was talking about the case that he walked us through, um, you could tell that, you know, every little move, every step was, was just meant so much to him um, and that he really cared about the work of the Attorney General, uh, which is really important because when you think about it, it's sort of a weird position in the presidential cabinet. Um, it's not kind of overseeing or, or I guess it is he oversees the Department of Justice but right. um, it's a lot more than that. you really are standing up for a lot of really important issues, of American values um, and working to protect that all across the country in some of the highest profile court cases um, and things like that. So
1: and one other thing that you know I thought was so interesting is you see when you get a decision like Shelby County, like we talked to him at length um, about that one, you know, you see what happens on TV, you see the journalist report that they've struck down Section 4 of the Voting Rights Act, mm-hmm. you got um, Eric Holder's statement, the public statement from the DOJ, uh, in, op- you know, in opposition to that decision, uh, supporting Section 4 of the VRA, um, but you don't get to hear what happens behind closed doors. Exactly. Like I mean, I think he really uh, took us inside the room, and, you know, those stories about who he was talking to at the time, his conversations with President Obama about it, and so on and so forth, uh, really kind of brought it to life. Yeah, exactly. The thing we tried to do here on Fly on the Wall. Um, So that wraps it up for us this week. Check back in next
0: Sunday morning for our next episode. We're almost wrapping up with this season. We'll be finishing up in May as the semester ends, but we'll be back for you very soon. Have a great week, everyone.